believe it or not, we're not going to Romans chapter 8. I know you're used to hearing that as the next couple of words out of my mouth. We're actually going to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I believe we spent about a year in this passage, too. And uh, we should know it very, very well. I know it's still in here. I keep I keep turning past it and back on the other side. Okay. First Corinthians fifteen, I want to start right at the beginning of the chapter. And what I'd like to do is spend uh tonight and the next two messages, which is the sunrise and the Easter service message, right here in this passage. There is so much to to glean here, and uh, we're going to look at this. Now, communion always does two things for me, and uh, I wonder if it does the same for you. Whenever we have a communion service, and we've all had lots of them, haven't we? It humbles me. It humbles me to think that somebody, and I know who it is, but somebody would be willing to die for my sins. That is a remarkable thing to me. That somebody would do such a thing. And it's just a humbling thing, isn't it? That he should do that for us. And the second thing it always does, it makes me more appreciative. Every single time I approach this theme, it's one that we sing of so often in Scripture. In our hymn books, we see it over and over again. The death of Christ, the death of Christ. We could sing songs, you know, the rest of the night if we wanted to as well. But we ought to appreciate it more and more and more. The more we understand it, the more uh, awe-inspiring it is. It's just an incredible theme. At the Last Supper, as we use this term for our communion service, when the bread is given, when the cup is given, you know, all the gospel writers record that event, but John, and it's not that he forgot or something like that. He did not talk about the actual giving of the bread and the cups there. But Paul does mention it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, And I find it interesting, here we're in 1 Corinthians 15, but in chapter number 11, Paul wrote more than likely before any of the Gospels had been written yet. Historically, I believe that the Gospels were written after the time that Corinthians would have been written. Corinthians was one of the earlier books written in the New Testament. As a result of that, though Matthew and Mark both say phrases like, take, eat, this is my body. Those passages don't explain why. They're just told to do it. It's in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11:24, where it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. That phrase is significant, isn't it? Which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, Paul doesn't claim to have gleaned his information from the other disciples. Uh, He was told directly by Christ what took place that night. And he was told to record it that way. Luke wasn't a disciple. And yet, when Luke 
uh, interviewed, apparently interviewed the apostles and others to give the most detailed account he possibly could of the life of Christ. He says in Luke 22:19, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. So Luke also includes that in his statement. Do this in remembrance of me. And when he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Twice that covenant is made, just like in Corinthians. It was for you. It was for you. I think that's rather significant. We stop and look at that and we say, yes. That's for us, that description of the death of Christ on our behalf. That is the topic of our time tonight in God's Word. That is the topic of it. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Paul says that's important. He had just said that earlier, didn't he? He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you that which is of first importance. Because it's by that that you are saved. Isn't that what he said in verse 2? By which you have been saved. It's of first importance. And it really ought to be. I, I would think that your salvation means a great deal to you. Doesn't it? Of course it does. You folks do know that. I don't have to convince you of that. I know. But when we think about these things, it's first importance. It's the first of all importance. Something of the greatest value. Something as a precious treasure. Would you trade it for something else? No. No. Would you be willing to take a cheap substitute for it? I don't think so. You know, this world has a conception of religion that they want to impress upon us that really just cheapens the message of the gospel. It cheapens it. And that's a mild term, mind you, for all that you can say about what the world does with the gospel of Christ. They offer trinkets instead of your treasure. They give you alternatives to it. They, they give you substitutes for it. They give you a watered-down version of it. They strip it of its strength. They devoid it of the essence, such as the issue of sin. You can't have the gospel message without the topic of sin, because that's what it says. He died for our sins. You can't take that out of the story. 
You can't take the consequence of sin out of the story. He, it's death. And what did he do? He died. You can't strip that out of the story. But they want a softer, easier gospel. They, they want one that, that doesn't really make any claims on your life, you know. They don't, it doesn't force you to change your life in any way. But it also cannot save your soul. To speak in very general terms, we can do that. But Paul didn't. He says in the last time there will be men. And he characterizes these men in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And when he gets to the end of the list, he says, They hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They use our words. They wouldn't mind the outcome of our faith, but they don't want the faith side. They just want the heaven side without the trappings as they would have it. We sing there's power in the blood. Is it because we know something? Isn't, isn't that blood something that has done something for us? Speak of its power. The death of Christ has redeemed us by His blood. Nothing else could have done it. Nothing else could have accomplished that. So I take no substitutes for this truth that we're studying here tonight. No substitutes. By it, I have been saved. That's what Paul said in verse 2. By it, we have been saved. It is of first importance to us. What is it? Verse 3 and 4. He defines the gospel in some of the easiest terms you could possibly express it. And he uses just verbs to describe it. Really, three little verbs. Christ died. Next verse, verse number 4. He was buried. The third verb, he was raised from the dead. Those are the three words we're working with for the next three services. Tonight he died. And that's of most importance to us. I'm going to remind you of that Sunday morning too. It's of most importance to us that he died. Paul says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now his choice of words are fascinating to me. I love words. I love studying words. And the first thing he said in that phrase is Christ. Christ. Now, that wasn't a nickname. We use nicknames for people when we talk about them, or sometimes we just call people by their last name. This was not Jesus' last name either. You've heard the name Jesus Christ. That's not first and last name. Christ is his title. His title. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. It's the equivalent of the word anointed one. The chosen one. God's special servant. The Jews understood the concept of Messiah. They'd been looking for Messiah, although they had a a, a diminished view of who the Messiah would be. He was to be a deliverer, right? He was to deliver them. What they thought was that he was there to deliver them from their troubles. Just the typical troubles around them. Enemies difficulty, rough life, things of that nature. 
Nelson's Bible Dictionary said for centuries the Jewish people had looked for a prophesied Messiah, a deliverer who would usher in a kingdom of peace and prosperity. And that's all they could see. (laughs) Give me peace, give me prosperity. That's all they really wanted. Forget the idea of a relationship with him. Forget the idea of righteousness and all that, you know, that requires a man to live in a righteous kingdom. They just wanted a kingdom where there was peace. That's it. Give me peace. Give me prosperity. That was their goal. That was their desire. And it's very short-sighted. Because it was limited. It was temporary. It was only anchored to the things of this world. They wanted political peace. They wanted release from enemies. I think if we had problems with enemies, we wouldn't mind that. How would we? We'd like that. But that's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to set us free from tribulation. He says, oh, you have plenty of that in this world, but take courage, I've overcome the world. They wanted peace from their enemy. They wanted release from, from their neighbors' uh, influence and dominance over them. They wanted the hopes of living their lives without threats from outside. Uh, they wanted a place to have a home and a herd and a crop, all physical in nature all protected somehow by this great Messiah who would keep their flocks safe from enemies and keep their harvests safe from enemies. They, they wanted those things, but they're all very temporary in the scheme of life. Well, you know, next year there's a crop that will replace this year. And the herds are always changing. And the flocks are always changing. They wanted prosperity. They wanted wealth. A lot of people do. They wanted abundance. A lot of people do. They somehow equate that with joy. And I think our world's still in that thinking pattern. The more you have, the happier you must be, huh? But they wanted abundance. But that also is a very physical, very limited viewpoint. That's all they wanted of their Messiah. That's what they were looking for. Now, Paul used to aim for such things, too. As a good Jew growing up, he was certainly interested in the Messiah. He thought perhaps the more righteous he was, the more likelihood he would find that peace or that prosperity that the Messiah would bring. He he spent his early years of his life trying to be as righteous as he possibly could. That was gain to him, remember? That was his gain. That's what he was after. Until he actually met the Messiah. And you know the change in his life. That's where he found out what true peace really was. That's when he found out what being rich in Christ really was. He had deliverance over something greater than a physical enemy. He had deliverance over his greatest enemy, and that is death. That's the Messiah he came to know. That's the Messiah that is referenced in this very first word. Christ. Not the Jewish conception of a Christ, but the believer's conception of a Christ. What he's delivered us from. Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He keeps using that term. Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Now that's totally against the Jewish concept. And count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. I'm telling you as we start here this evening, it's not by accident, and it's not by some thoughtless action that Paul just writes Christ on the page. It's deliberate. Christ is the only deliverer. The only one who can change us. And he has to put him down in his name like that first. Christ died for our sins. In order to deliver, he had to die. That was also contrary to the Jewish mentality. Because, let's just say it as they would, the victor is not the one who dies. The victor is the one who wins the battle. And they thought death was never in the conception of a Messiah. They could not conceive death as a goal, as a plan, as an action, as a fulfillment of their Messiah. They could not understand that. Even to this day, they're puzzled by it. The rabbis will teach them, don't read Isaiah 53. They'll keep them out of that chapter. Because that chapter says it so very clearly. And so many of them don't even know it exists. And when they see it for the first time, it just pops circuits in their head. They're like, you've got to be kidding me. The Messiah died? That's incredible. Notice how simply Paul said it. Christ died. He died. The Messiah, the Deliverer, died. And yet that's the beauty of the passage, isn't it? That's where the victory really lies in this, because he died. Now let me, let me have some fun with you here this evening and examine that verb died for a minute. All right? I'll give you just a touch of Greek. You can handle that, can't you? Just a touch. A little bit. Arist tent is what they call it. A-O-R-I-S-T. Arist tent. We would equate it with past tense. We would put anything in the aorist tense with an E-D on the end of it, or the equivalent, you know, other words, different spellings. But the same concept. We look at it that way and we say, okay, that's past tense, and this certainly is, right? Christ died. That's the English statement here. It's the equivalent of a Greek aorist tense. But here's what's very interesting about that, and I'll just give you a t- tidbit of it, and I think you might enjoy this. The scholars say that the aorist tense is the most important of the verb tenses in the Greek language. There's a lot of reasons for that, and I'll bore you, keep you from being bored with most of them. But it speaks of an action that has been attained it speaks of an action that is simply a fact. All right? That's all it is. It's stating the fact. The fact. We put it in the past tense because it's over. It's done. It's not in the continuing process. All right? It's not slowly developing like Christ is dying for our sins. It's not waiting for that to be done. It's not updating like your computer every time you turn it on. 
trying to get it up to speed. There, that word is not like that. It, it doesn't need repeated like the Catholic Mass does all the time. He died. The Greek tense, done. It's a fact. It's been completed. When you stop and look at it that way, it's, it's precious to us. Because we're not waiting on something more. You see? We don't have to, to ascribe to something. Get a subscription somehow. We, 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 we don't have to pay into this to finish it. We, we don't have to add to it to complete it. We don't have to somehow, you know, work that so it happens. It's done. And we didn't have to do it. It's been finished. He did. It's completed. I think it's a powerful phrase. Just simply the fact that it is a fact. That's of first importance to Paul as he starts to write. This is important to our gospel message, isn't it? When we tell other people about Christ, do we say, now if you give me 20 bucks, you might be saved. We don't do that, do we? We don't tell them to make sure you attend church 15 weeks in a row without missing. We, we don't put stipulations on it. We don't sell it. It's a free gift. We know that. But here's why. It's done. That's important to our gospel, isn't it? We're not t- telling people to add to it. It's already done. When we read of the crucifixion of Christ, we do in Scripture. It's done. Now, we know this. Historically, the cross was not optional in God's plan, was it? No, it wasn't. You know, the Jews thought they had a great strategy. That Toward that last week, especially. They somehow convinced the Romans to execute Jesus on a cross as a criminal. They thought they were pretty clever. Somehow, their bloodthirstiness as a crowd jumped in, the Romans' cruelty, as we know that's true, the leaders, the religious folk of the day and age, all worked together to somehow work out this great execution of the enemy of all of them. They wanted to remove Christ. But the death of Christ was not their invention. They killed out of envy. Yes. They killed out of wickedness. That's true. But God slew his own son out of love. Out of mercy. Out of holiness. That was God's plan. So we can see his death from two different views, really, can't we? If we looked at it from man's view, we would say, well, that was a big problem. That was a mistake. That was a a failure, because that's what man thinks when they see somebody dies at the end of the story. Or we could look at it from God's view. But you know what's interesting? One man said it that covered both views. And he didn't even know the Lord. His name was Caiaphas. He was the high priest. Believe it or not, a wicked man. But the high priest in his day, and in John 11, 49, 50, this is what Caiaphas said. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, 
they were arguing in the Sanhedrin and all that. He says, oh, you know nothing at all. You know how everyone uses that phrase in political circles, don't they? He did. You don't know anything. He says this, and this is powerful. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation not perish. Those were his words. Do you know what he was thinking? It's best we get rid of this one guy so the rest of the world could have peace. What he didn't know was what he was actually saying. It is expedient. It's great. It's everything we need for one man to die for the sins of everybody. How do I know that's what was meant? This is what the Holy Spirit meant by it. In John eleven fifty one and 52, the next two verses, it says, Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas had no idea he was actually speaking the plan of God. No idea. You see, there was a reason for this death, wasn't there? It wasn't some accident. It wasn't some tragedy. It wasn't something that, you know, we scratch our head and wonder, why did that happen? We could have asked Adam why it happened. He would have known. Adam is the one that was told, remember, in the garden, you can eat freely of any tree of this garden except that tree. Because the day you eat of that tree... You shall surely die. Genesis chapter 2. Boy, you go way back in the book to find that one, don't you? Genesis two sixteen and 17. Ezekiel repeats that. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, he said, The soul that sins shall die. God didn't change his mind. Ezekiel was about, uh, let's see, 1,500 years later. God still holds to that. And then Paul writes to the Romans, A.D. 50-something, 50 56 maybe. Another five, six hundred years almost later than Ezekiel. And guess what it says in Romans 3, or, or 6.23? For the wages of sin is death. God hasn't changed his mind. And he won't. It was entirely fitting this is what I'm bringing you to. It's entirely necessary that Christ would die. It's absolutely necessary. Not because he sinned. All right? Scripture makes that clear, doesn't it? It's abundantly clear. He had not sinned. But it's simply this. God's declaration concerning sin was that the consequence of sin is death. Nothing short of death would satisfy His holiness. Nothing short of death would satisfy His holiness. It was the law. Paul would say it was also the curse of the law. Because the curse comes when you fail it, right? It was the curse of the law. It was inevitable. That was the outcome of a single sin. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? It's pretty heavy. If you think, and just for your imagination purposes here for a minute, if you think that maybe you're going to be just just fine, 
You're going to get through life without any sin. And there at the age of four, you mess up. Whoa! What do you do about that the rest of your life? One sin is sufficient to condemn a man. And then you find out later, I was born a sinner. Hmm. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's inevitable there's sin. And it's inevitable there's death. It's spread to all mankind, Romans 5 says. It's spread to all mankind, for all have sinned in chapters 3 and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Scripture says. But this is where it becomes, even that doctrine, that terrible doctrine of holiness and sin and consequence called death, all of those things put together, it becomes very precious when we put Christ in the middle of it. It gives meaning to his death, doesn't it? The text says here in Romans, I mean Corinthians 15:3, Christ died for our sins. <laughs> for our sins. That little preposition for on behalf of in place of us, in place in our place. For the sake of us, instead of us, on our part, we use the word substitution sometimes to say, He took our place. He took our place. Here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. He used the same word. He was made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That's what his death has done. That was the purpose of it. Spurgeon was uh, said to have quoted this. He did not write it. But in his works you will find it. It says, Upon a death I did not die... Upon a life I did not live, I stake my whole eternity. I've been pondering that for a couple of days. That came from a hymn, actually. There was a hymn writer living about the same time as Spurgeon did, named Horatius Bonar. You might have heard his name before. This is his song, and it's not in our hymn book. I wish we could find it someday. But listen, you'll see the similarities here, because this is where Spurgeon got that thought. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Not on my tears which I have shed, not on the sorrows I have known, another's tears, another's griefs. Of these I rest, on these alone. Lord, I believe, O deal with me, as one who has thy word believed. I take the gift, Lord, look on me, as one who has thy gift received. O Jesus, Son of God, I build on what thy cross has done for me. There both my death and life I read, my guide and pardon there I see. I know it's a little harder to follow the English style. 
And think of that. Upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. That's the verse you're reading. In essence, in verse number 3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. The doctrine that I'm talking to you today, like I said, has no alternatives. There's no substitutes for it. Paul says this of Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. That's it. Hebrews 9 verse 15 says this, For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, in other words, He died for our sins, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The writer is just simply saying, Jesus did it. He paid the price. He died the death. Now you know when it says according to Scripture that it is supportable. The Old Testament says so. That's why Paul would use such phrases. How many times might we find phrases referencing the death of Christ? Maybe Psalm 69. Maybe Psalm 22. Maybe the one that I referenced earlier today. Isaiah 53. The Old Testament declared his death even described his death. It described his triumphal entry. Did you know that? It described the act of Judas betraying him. It described him being nailed to a cross, being pierced in his hands and his feet. It described him being struck with a spear. It described him as not having his bones broken. It described his garments being divided up. All these references Matter of fact, it also described him being buried, and it also described him rising again. The Old Testament is full of this information, but here's one particularly from Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we were healed. You know what? I love reading that verse, but I don't like to see the word our so often in it. Our sin, our iniquity, our transgressions. This is of first importance to us. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Before we go to this table to remember that fact, as it says, consider just a few more minutes just a few, the results of that death on our behalf. I'm just going to read to you a handful of verses here. In John 6, verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now that's not this wafer here. It's talking about receiving Christ. He says he will live forever. Isn't that the promise? John 3.16, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here's another verse I'll read to you. Galatians 1.3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Rescue us from this present evil age. In Ephesians 5 verse 2, it says that we are to walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. It was pleasing to the Father. Titus 2 verse 14 speaks of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. That's one. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's two. And to make us zealous for good deeds. Three results. Just because he gave himself up for us. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. This is the importance that we have before us tonight. When we take of this cup, we talk about the fact he died. That is important to us. And there's no substitute for it, is there? He died for us. What a thing to remember. I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then the men who will help me this evening will come forward and we'll have our communion service. Heavenly Father, it's an amazing fact. It's an amazing doctrine. We are so thankful that you gave it to us to know. And that we know it in more ways than just intellectually. We know it by faith. We know that it's true. We know the results of it. We know the difference it's made. We know that Jesus is the Christ. And that he died for us. As we started with that song, And can it be that I should gain? That's a big question on our heart. But we do not question your love. And we do not question the fact Jesus died for us. As we remember that here at the table tonight, Lord, do indeed humble us under your mighty hand. And yet make us thankful. More thankful than before. More appreciative, again, of what you have accomplished on our behalf what you did when you sent your son who willingly came and died on our behalf for our sins. Thank you. Thank you for doing that for us. We rejoice in that. And we remember now in our service in Jesus' name.